Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 5th, 2012. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting today. This morning, our speaker, Ruth, a recovered compulsive overeater, will lead us on this revealing and transforming presentation of the 12 traditions. Our 12 traditions apply to the life of the fellowship itself. They are a guide to better ways of working and living, and they are to group survival what the 12 steps are to each member's recovery and peace of mind. With Ruth's fascinating insight, she will present us with an overview of these 12 traditions inspiring us to have a greater understanding and a deeper appreciation of these life-saving principles. There will be a question and answer period following Ruth's presentation. We do ask that in posing questions, please everyone, do not mention specific names or specific meetings as this leads to gossip and our wishes to respect Tradition 12 reminding us to place principles before personalities. And with no further ado, I will now turn the meeting over to our speaker, Ruth. Ruth, welcome. Please press star one, Ruth. Okay. All right. This is Ruth, and I'm a compulsive overeater. I want to thank you, Leah, for inviting me to speak. Uh, it's been a great joy. I've learned more about the traditions preparing for the talk. So um, I'll start. Basically, I'm going to give you a Ruth, we do not hear you. You may need to press star 1 to unmute again, please. Okay, can you now hear me? Indeed, yes. Okay, sorry. Okay, um, anyway, I'm Ruth and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, anyway, so what I'm going to do is do uh, a quick uh, condensed version of the presentation that uh, Joe and Charlie gave on the traditions back in 87, which I really like. And then I'm going to go into some historical content um, and go then through the traditions as Bill explained them in the language of the heart. Um, Vision for You is a brand new meeting. Uh, language of the heart was the actual used by Bill through the Grapevine articles to pre present issues he was hearing, uh, he got in his mail, and then uh, he actually was the very first time that he ever presented that, that uh, idea of 12 traditions uh, was in um, May of 19, or in March of 1946. So, um, so I will be citing the language of the heart a lot because it will be covering this time in which it's really raw and it's really trying to talk about ideas and trying to get feedback and then trying to uh, create something that would I find brilliant that he did. So anyway, let's start off with Joe and Charlie's presentation. Um, those of you familiar with Joe and Charlie, they basically state that uh, the steps or answer, there will be three things that the big book answers. Uh, the first question is what is the problem? And what is the problem is step one, powerlessness. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. Again? 45 of the big book. Um, so that is the problem. Um, and what something? they do is they lay the traditions and they go they down the same question. way. And so what they say is that problem is step one. 
Also, the problem in tradition is traditional. So you are going to be left I'm out. getting some feedback. I got somebody on the line with me. Yes, anyway. one moment, please. One moment. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. try again, Ruth. Thank you. Great, right. thanks. Okay, so we have tr we have step one, which is what is the problem. Uh, if we don't have the problem, we don't need to be a part of this fellowship. But if we have the problem, which is lack of power, that was our dilemma, power, lack of power regarding food. In the tradition one is, is the problem. What is the problem? And the problem is lack of unity. If we don't have unity in OA, then we will die. And when I say we, we mean the group. So the steps are for individual recovery. The, the traditions are for group recovery. For the group to recover, and the group will recover, then it has to follow these 12 traditions. Or another way I've heard it said, which I like, it said the steps are to prevent suicide and the uh, traditions are to prevent homicide. But anyway, so anyway, what is the problem? Lack of unity. And if we don't have unity, I don't mean unified in the sense that all, we all have to be females, we all have to be white, we have to be, I don't Jewish or Christian or tall or short. Or, that's not what I mean. I don't mean that in the demographics. I meant unity as far as that we hold a common purpose and we stay with that. So what we need to do is make sure that the common welfare will become before the personal recovery. Personal recovery follows very close behind. But if we ever put our personal recovery before the common welfare of our group, the group will fight and disintegrate and not survive. So we need to have common welfare first. The good, the good of the group must come before the good of the individual within the whole group. Um, I will talk more about them in detail, but I'm just giving the basic uh, ideas. Then the second is, well, what is the solution? If I have the problem of compulsive eating, the solution has to be a power greater than myself. I have to have a power greater than me because I don't have the power. So if the problem is lack of power, solution is power or power greater than ourselves. And that will be what I'll need to go to because I can't do it myself. Well, the same, same thing will come in the traditions. The tradition, too, is what is the solution. And if the problem is lack of unity, in which individuals are put in their personal recovery before the group as a whole, then the solution, the only solution we can have, is God um, as he may express himself in our group conscience. So a power greater than me also is the solution. And the only way that the group can make it, that the group can recover, is if God through us, the collective conscious of us, then is the one that makes the decisions in that group. It cannot be the decisions of individuals. It cannot be personal recovery first. So God has to be one, the one that makes the decisions. And the last question uh, Joe and Charlie always ask, well, how do you get the solution? You know, what is the problem with the solution? How do you get the solution? And we know that the, how we get the solution is steps 3 through 12. So we need to now, we know what the problem is, which is lack of power. We know what the solution is, which is power. Then we decide to go towards power, step three. We make an inventory four. We go and give that inventory away, five. Um, we know what our character defects are. We note that we're ready to let them go, six. We go and ask God humbly to let God have our defects, seven. We make the list of people we've harmed. We go to those people, eight and nine. Uh, we do a daily inventory, uh, and four through nine is ten. We improve our conscious contact with 11, and then, of course, the result of all of this is the spiritual awakening, which is then we carry this in all of our affairs. So it's, it's what to do. These are specific steps. Well, the traditions in 3 through 12 are basically what not to do. They are something that we give up. So uh, we have certain things that we have to do. We have to be willing to not impose a membership requirement. 
We have to be willing to let the groups be autonomous and not, some, not somebody from the outside. Unless it harms other groups, neighboring groups, or always the whole, they get to do their right. But we're not going to come in and give them orders and tell them what to do. We don't have any other purpose but one, so we don't impose other purposes. We don't let money, property, and prestige get us off track. We don't do that. We don't uh, take money from anybody else. We have to be fully self-supporting. We don't, we're not professional. We don't have OA, I mean, OA therapists that get paid for the task. No, 12-step work always is unpaid, and we pay appropriately any special workers. Uh, we're not bureaucratic. We don't do that. We don't have opinions on outside issues. We don't get caught up in public relations policy where we try to promote ourselves. We let attraction be that. And then the result of all this is anonymity, which means then we put principles before personality. So those are what we don't do. And so that basically covers how to look at the 12 traditions relative to the 12 steps. So they mirror each other. With that being said, then moving into the history of the traditions, if we go back in time, um, you know, we, we know some of the history. In 1939, the big book was published. At that time, it, it had 100 recovered alcoholics. Um, things began to pick up. By the time Jack Anderson's article was published in the Saturday Evening Post in March of 41, uh, AA was at 2,000 members. So it was really picking up. But even after this, it just skyrocketed. By the time that year ended, it had already gone up to 8,000. So just in nine months, it had quadrupled in size. And we know by the time that the traditions were approved at the International Convention in Cleveland in 1950, AA was already at 96,000. So it was going fast and furious. It was beyond comprehension. No one even knew it was going to take off like this. Well, when they actually decided in 1937, the 40 people that were recovered at that time met in Akron with Dr. Bob there, and they sat down to what they called a public relations meeting. They had never had that before, but they wondered, what can we do to get the message out? There are now 40 of us recovered. What can we do? Well, there's some really grandiosity ideas in that meeting, but one idea that stuck that did was, well, let's put this, these ideas in a book so that people can get this information. They don't all have to come here to Akron or New York to find out because we have three meetings one also in Cleveland. So they decided to create the book, and in that decision to create the book, they also decided a couple other things. They decided that the book would be published by AA. They were not going to let somebody outside of them decide what should be in the book, because if you have an, uh, somebody else publishing it, they get the final call. So they decided to publish it themselves. They also decided to establish a very small general service office. It was two people, Bill Wilson <laughs> and his secretary, um, paid not very... <laughs> Didn't always get paid on time, but they had a very tiny office. So Bill was going to be kind of the hot spot for any kinds of concerns or issues. They, anything you would want to do, you would send it by mail usually. Not everybody had phones back then even. So that he was going to be kind of keeping track of everything. So he was in place for then what happened. Well, this great grand influx of people that had all kinds of ideas. I mean, I tell you, I, I, it's hard to believe, but there was a meeting in Richmond, Virginia, who they, what they did in their meetings is they served alcohol to everybody. I really don't know how that keeps one sober, but let me not get on a side road here on that one. But anyway, there were some quite some strange ideas out there, and there was conflict and people struggling to try to handle it. They would pick up the book, they would read it, they would have no guidance from the old-timers. They were just there, lonely in their own little city, trying to farm something as best they could from the book. So again, Bill's reading all this, and he's, he's very worried. And he says, you know, we've got to get something, uh, something that can guide everybody, something that can, people can kind of be a guiding principle. We know we're not going to have rules and regulations, but we've got to have some overall guidance. And so he um, 
basically he was wondering how he was going to get the word out. I mean, this was before TV. It didn't exist yet. Uh, it wasn't like we had all the technology we have today. But lo and behold, and God works in great mysterious ways, there was something that had been created in June of 1944 called the Grapevine. And it was presenting, it was just like Always Lifeline. It would have articles, members, they would send it out and see what people thought, generate a meeting really between meetings. People could read this. Well, it occurred to Bill, you know, after this had been out for a little while, that maybe this was the place he could do this. Maybe he could take all that he was learning from these letters, he would put them down in ideas how to possibly handle that and put them in, this, in the grapevine. And then people could write back to New York and let them know kind of what they thought or maybe they needed to modify it, what was their response to what he was trying to formulate. At that time, the traditions didn't exist. He was just trying to grab some ideas and put them together for the safety of all of AA. He and some felt this thing could all blow up. Well, if we put it in perspective, when we say when was the greatest time the traditions were needed, it wasn't at their greatest low moment. It wasn't when people were struggling. It wasn't when the membership was falling. It wasn't that at all. It was at the height of their success. Success being defined by the number of increasing people that were members of AA. As it got bigger, it was unruly. And so the height of the success is what brought the 12 traditions into being. The 12 steps were brought into being because of the failures of, every, of these uh, few people at the beginning. And eventually, by the time the steps were written in late 1938, it was to reflect what had happened to get out of the failures they had to come to a point of being recovered. So the traditions come from the other direction. Everybody's successful and everything is skyrocketing so fast that they have to try to find a way in their success. And so it is really a reflection of success being more than it was going faster than anybody could handle that they then created the tradition. So he wanted to know what could he could do to do that. So let me just start off. I'm going to use most all these articles, unless I state them, are going to be coming from The Language of the Heart, which is a book of all Bill W.'s grapevine uh, writings, and uh, kind of come up with what he said. So let me give you the first example, and this will be on page 32 of the book, and it's an article he wrote in June of 46. And he says about this whole issue of success. In the years that lie just ahead, Alcoholics Anonymous faces a supreme test, the great ordeal of its own prosperity and success. I think it will prove the greatest trial of all. Can we but weather that, the ways of time and circumstance may beat upon us in vain, our destiny will be secure. So again, they come from success and how we're going to deal with it, and that's what he proposed. He had, he, he had written the original uh, long farm. These were in long farms. The short farm didn't come out until 1949, just before the convention, in order to try to condense it into a few words that was passable. But the long farm, and you go to the back of your book, big book, five, 562, you have the short farm, and then the long farm follows that. Okay. So he's put that out. A year and a half later, now it's October of 1947, he has a talk in Memphis, and basically a transcript of that talk has been presented. And in that talk, he again presents the long form. But this time it's been modified with some small changes. Uh, he's been learning some things over the past 18 months. He's kind of put some, he's added some things to qualify to make it more specific so people kind of pretty much understand what's going on. And that happened in 1947. So, um, in that talk, he again talks about success, and he's trying to address this issue. And I, I really think this paragraph is powerful. I'd like to read it this time and then come back at the end and use that as a comparison with a vision for you as it goes through great success. I mean, your first meeting, you have 120 men, members, so obviously you have great success. And I see that the correlation. Anyway, this is what he says. Yet there does remain a problem, a serious problem, 
in whose solution AAs will expect us old-timers to occasionally take a hand. That is the problem of success itself. Always a heady wine, success may sometimes cause us to forget that each of us lives on borrowed time. We may forget that we are the people who cannot exist at all but for the grace of God. The wine of forgetfulness might make us dream that Alcoholics Anonymous was our success rather than God's will. The very malady which once tore us apart personally could again commence to rend us as groups. False pride might lead us to controversy, to claims of power and prestige, to bickerings over property, money, and personal authority. We would not be human if these illnesses didn't sometimes attack us. Therefore, many of us think today the main problem of Alcoholics Anonymous is this. How, as a movement, shall we maintain our humility and so our unity in the face of what the world calls a great triumph? Perhaps we need not look far afield for an answer. We need only apply and we only adapt and apply to our group life these principles upon which each of us has founded his own recovery. If humility can expel the obsession to drink alcohol, then surely humility can be the antidote for that subtle wine called success. So for me, I think he's talking about self-will. Of course, we have self-will, and we have to let that go, but the group has self-will. It has its own, you know, agenda. And so when things are going very well, we can get pretty arrogant. We can think things are really going good. We can really kind of say, well, you know, this is really good. Everything is going great. This is a great meeting. Things are, people are coming in. People are hearing how this is saving their lives. We're doing well. But the problem when we keep using the word we, it's just like in, in our personal recovery when we keep using I, we somehow separate ourselves from God and God's will because now we are running the show, we think, because look how well we are doing. And it could be an issue that a vision for you could fall into. Many groups have done that, groups which then because there becomes this belief that things are going so well and then individual or people in that meeting begin to not follow those traditions. But things are going well, aren't they? But then what happens? Eventually something happens because the traditions aren't being followed. The question here, and I'd like to, we'll talk about it more at the end, is the, the wine of forgetfulness might make us dream that Alcoholics Anonymous was ourself rather than God's will. If the, a vision for you ever gets to the point to believe that it is, is causing this great success, Alcoholics Anonymous will say a vision for you, then what happens is God is thrown out of the picture because now the group itself takes credit for what it's doing. Or if the group decides that an individual within that group is the one that's running the show and is doing a great job, then that, that putting that person on a pedestal, and a pedestal is as much a prison as any small space, then that then begins to not go directly against what Bill has written in these articles of what cannot happen. Because that then will then place that person or that group as the solution, the success, and not God's will. The, the will, the... Uh, Ego is very subtle, and it can be just as subtle in group recovery as it is in individual recovery. But again, we're talking about success. So he's writing these things down. And so um, when he wrote this thing, at the, the one I just told you, to end the, the parag- this um, article which I was talking about, which is October 47, at the very end of that article on page 7, he sums up. He says, to sum up, for thousands of alcoholics yet to come, AA does have an answer. But there is one condition. We must at all costs preserve our essential unity. It must be made unbreakably secure. Without permanent unity, there can be little lasting recovery for anyone. 
Hence, our future absolutely depends upon the creation and observance of a sound group tradition. First things will always need to be first. Humility before success and unity before fame. And I love that statement. It's got to be humility before success. We know that about our individual recovery. We have to have humility. We will not have success. That is permanent abstinence and being recovered. And unity before fame. We must have the unity first. We must have common welfare before fame. We must have, common, we must have our common welfare before personal recovery. If we do not do that, we are violating tradition one. We are in the problem, and so we're going to be having problems. It's just a matter of time. So let's now go back to the beginning, the very first article that Bill ever wrote uh, about the traditions. And if you want to read Language of the Heart, all of, almost all of part one is the traditions. That's almost all he wrote on, and he wrote regularly, even monthly, on this issue. So we go to the very first article he wrote about the traditions, and this was August of 45. So we have yet to even have the traditions created. They don't exist yet. And these first two articles then is him presenting what he believes are some issues as he's now, even within himself, formulating some principles, some traditions to deal with that. So in this article, August of 45, it's page four of the book, these are the things he felt were the concerns he saw. And it's important for me, my analogy is if I'm outside and I'm pulling weeds and I see this big weed and everything, there's something above the ground, there's something below the ground. And so I come over and I pull that weed out, and if I pull out just what's above the ground, what's below the ground will cause that weed to probably appear within the next few days. I have to then get over there and pull out the roots. And this is for me, this paragraph is what I believe he is stating is the roots of the problem. We'll see the manifestations in behavior that cause problems, but underneath the surface, these, this is what he described as the problems. Personal glorification, overwhelming pride, consuming ambition, exhibitionism, intolerant smugness, money or power madness, refusal to admit mistakes and learn from them, self-satisfaction, lazy complacency, these and many more are the garden varieties of ills which so often beset movements as well as individuals. We AAs as individuals have suffered much from just such defects and must daily admit and deal with them in our personal lives if we are to stay sober and useful. I think everything springs from that is these are the things he's mentioning that we have to deal with, and if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. In the very next article he writes, the very next month, called Rules Dangerous but You." you uh, unity vital, and this was in September 45. And again now, he has yet to write the traditions, but he's writing some key things that he finds that are the troubling characteristics. Well, now that we've given us some below-the-ground issues, he's now beginning to give us something above ground, if you would like to say that, and this is what he says about rules. Rules and regulations seem to be little good for us. They seldom work well. Were we to proceed by rule, somebody would have to make them. And more difficult still, somebody would have to enforce them. Rulemaking has often been tried. It usually results in controversy among the rulemakers as what the rule should be. And when it comes to enforcing an edit, well, you all know the answer. When we try to enforce rules and regulations, however reasonable, we almost always get in so Dutch that our authority disappears. A cry goes up, down with the dictators, off with their heads. Heard and astonished, control committee after control committee, leader after leader, makes the discovery that human authority, be it ever so impartial or benign, seldom works long or well in our affairs. 
Alcoholics, no matter if ragged, are yet the most rugged of individualists, true anarchists at heart. Well, he goes on the next paragraph. He wants to let you know that he speaks from his own personal experience about this. He says, I also served my time as a maker of rules, a regulator of other people's conduct. I, too, have spent sleepless nights nursing my wounded ego, wondering how others whose lives I sought to manage could be so unreasonable, so thoughtless of poor me. I can now look back upon such experience with much amusement, amusement and gratitude as well. So Bill knows what he's talking about. He was the one right in the middle of it trying to control people and making them do just what he thought they should do. And uh, so the rulemaking is a problem, and it's going to ca cause everything to fall apart. He then says it a second time. He's, uh, again, now he's now put out the uh, traditions. He's proposing them. So in January 47, he follows up, follows up with another article, and he's basically saying the same thing, but he wants to, again, give this. Again, we're the individualists, so he wants to make the point again. Will AA ever have a personal government? And in this, he again talks about rulemaking, what the consequences are. On page 41, it says, nowhere in AA is there to be seen any, uh, any human authority that can compel an AA group to do anything. Some AA groups, for example, elect their leaders. But even with such a mandate, each leader soon discovers that while he can always guide by example or persuasion, he can never boss, else at election time he may find himself passed by. The majority of AA groups do not even choose leaders. They prefer rotating committees to handle their simple affairs. These committees are inevitably regarded as servants. They have only the authorization to serve, never to command. Each committee carries out what it believes to be the wishes of its group. That is all. The AA committees used to try to discipline wayward members, though they have sometimes through, though through that they have sometimes composed minute rules and regulations, and now men have set themselves up as judges of other people's personal motives. I know of no case where any of these seemingly worthy strivings had any lasting effect, except perhaps the election of a brand new committee. So um, that kind of set the tone of what he was talking about. So when we look at the, the traditions, the long farm is what he created, um, and when we look at them, um, he again speaks, and a lot of these articles will go and explain and, and get into that. But I just do want to note one thing about the 12 traditions. You know, I love little tidbit facts that nobody else knows, so I'm going to stick one in here. <laughs> anyway, the, basically what happened, we, as I said, the traditions were put down for the very first time in writing, given out to the fellowship in the Great Prime in April of 1946. There was some revisions that occurred, and uh, again, the long firm came out in October of 47. It was a speech he gave in Memphis, and then there was a transcript of that, and that's in, in the language of the heart. So if we look at the long form, so I looked at the uh, long form from 46 to 47, and of course what's currently in our big book. What's currently in our big book in the long form is what was given out in October 47. But we want, I just want to add something that in Tradition 9, in the original long form in 46, there wasn't one sentence. It was added in the, in the 1947, and the tone of that sentence is distinct from the rest of the traditions, and I think it's worthy of noting it. If we go to Tradition 9, in the very last three sentences, if you go in your book and look that up, if you look at the very last three sentences of Tradition 9, what it said in the original 1946 version, it said, all such representatives are to be guided in the spirit of service. For true leaders in AA are but trusted and experienced servants of the whole. They derive no real authority from their titles, 
universal respect is the key to their usefulness. In 47, he had added a sentence, and, it now, and now that's the long form that currently exists, and I think the sentence is very key. It says, all such representatives are to be guided in the spirit of service, for true leaders in AA are but trusted and experienced servants of the whole. They derive no real authority from their titles. They do not govern. Universal respect is the key to their usefulness. So he felt the need to add the statement, they do not govern. Well, as we ha I read to you about the stuff about rules and regulation, he was very clear that that's not the way it's going to work. He wrote the traditions, and you can look at this, these traditions. It's very important when you look at them. And if you look at them, you'll see we got here, I noticed, uh, step, uh, tradition six is ought never, seven ought to, eight uh, should remain forever, nine is ought never, uh, ten has no opinion. He's written them in positive vein. I mean, you're reading those what not to do, uh, three through 12. He writes in such a way, a way to not get everybody all, oh, you're giving me rules and regulation. I, you just said we're not supposed to have all these rules and regulation. He's presented them in such a way that they're, they're viable. I mean, they, people can get into this. They can say, yeah. But in this sentence, he writes something, and it's the only time the word not is ever written in the traditions. It, it never exists anywhere else. And he made it very clear, and he said, they do not govern. Now, I don't know about you. When I hear a sentence that says, they do not govern, I hear a different sense of energy in that than ought not to, ought never. Uh, that is a, it's a real definite, forceful statement that needed to be added, he learned, in those 18 months, had to be put in. So it was put in, and it was very specific, and it was pretty much, to me, it kind of looks like a rule. They do not govern. So he had to put it in, and he put it in such a forceful way that you won't see that, I believe, that level of force. They're all important. They were significant. I'm not saying that. But the forcefulness of that sentence, it doesn't really exist in the rest of the traditions, if you carefully read them, even in the short form. Well, when they um, had done the traditions, they got to 1949. It was apparent that this was going to be coming up for a vote uh, in 1950, and they said, Bill, can you just put it down in most condensed form? You can't. It's too wordy. It's just not going to be passable. Get them down in like the number of words, like a page, just like you do with the 12 steps. So he did do that. He kind of put them down. And if you look at the short form, there is only one place in the short form. This is a trivia fact. We have trivia pursuit for some reason. What's the only tradition that when he went from the long form to the short form, the tradition got longer. So the short form is the longer form <laughs> of that tradition. It got bigger, it got longer. Everything else, of course, got scaled down. And so what he's done, he's taken those three sentences in tradition nine, he's pulled them out of nine, and he's taken the ideas from those three sentences and put them in tradition two. So what he's learned, and, it, and by, even in 1948, it was still in tradition nine, they do not govern. But by the time he came to the short version, and this is now three years after they first came out in the grapevine, he's seeing the need, this, this concept about these trusted servants, they are to just serve, uh, they are not to govern. This kind of, the, the, our leaders, our leaders are but trusted servants. They don't govern us. Anybody that's a leader in any way is not to govern. He's now taken that concept and he's put it in tradition too. So it's not now part of one of the ought not to, ten of the ought not to. It's now a key component of what the solution is itself that these next ten traditions will expand upon exactly what you don't do in order for God to, through the group conscious, can express himself. And then we look in the short version, it says, for our group consciousness, there but one ultimate authority of loving God is may express himself in our group conscience. He now adds this sentence that's not in the, in the long form. 
our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. So it gets, it gets more top billing. It's right up at the, at the solution. So anyway, I just found it interesting. And uh, actually, he doesn't address it in any of the articles why he changed it. But uh, I'm sure scholars to the traditions maybe can go into more detail. OK, so we've had some background. And now let's look at each particular tradition as spelled out in what his writings. So we'll go to tradition one. And to do that, let's go to, we're going to go back to the article. Uh, it's page 32, and it's the individual in relation to AAA as a group. It's July of 46. And in this, we're going to cover what he's, what he's talking about, uh, Tradition 1. And I just want to note that unity, which has to be, has to be number one, lack of unity is their problem, that it also later, by 1955, it became the second legacy of AA. It was recovery, unity, and service. So it got top billing there too. So unity is the, the overall goal and purpose of the tradition. It becomes clearer and clearer as he writes. Anyway, if we go to, um, oh, okay. Nope, I said that wrong. All right. <laughs> Let me go to, oh, no, here it is. Okay. Anyway, the first paragraph here, and we're talking about Tradition 1, and it's uh, the, the first paragraph of the individual in relationship to AA as a group. And it says here, talking about Tradition 1, the first of, the, of our 12 points of AA tradition states, each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first, but individual welfare follows closely afterwards. This is a recognition common in all forms of society, that the individual must sometimes place the welfare of his fellows ahead of his own uncontrolled desires. Were the individual to yield nothing to the common welfare, there could be no society at all. Only self-will run riot, anarchy in the worst sense of the word. So when we look at Tradition 1, he's very clear that if everybody, let's say a vision for you did this. Okay, you're going to have a meeting. It's going to be Monday. And I don't know, you get 120 people on the line, and those 120 people get on the line, and every one of those 120 people decide they want, they want their, their needs met first. They want their personal recovery met. They're there for their personal recovery, but they're actually actively seeking their personal recovery first. And so you've got these 120 people, and they're all trying to get what they can get out of the meeting. It's all get and no give. Well, you can see how what would happen to a vision for you in a very, very, very short time if everybody was out to get what they could get for themselves and nobody was really giving to the greater good of the group, which at times, of course, is going to cause that ego to go back down into place. And so what the tradition is basically saying is that we have to put the good of the, of the group has to come first. You get your personal recovery. It comes very closely behind the group's welfare, but the group's welfare has to come before individual welfare for the group's health. You and your individual recovery will do what you need to do, and you're working with your sponsor, and you're getting recovered. Yes, but in that meeting, when you're in that meeting, you must be aware of what makes the good of the group so that the group itself doesn't die by everybody selfishly getting what they can get out of it. And so he is saying that if we have that attitude, that we have to put ourselves first, the unity cannot, it cannot continue. And the overall, if you do not have unity, the group dies, and if the group dies, eventually all, then the other groups die, and always a whole dies, and we all are dead in it anyway. So we've got to do what we can to make sure the group as a whole works well. And so tradition one is the problem. We have to always be aware of what causes, um, I call them the three C's, conflict, chaos, and confusion. 
If you got that running rampant in your meeting, you may not know exactly what happened, but you can better believe the traditions haven't been followed because now you don't have unity. You're spending all of your time and energy in this and those things and not in the group functioning as a whole. Again, we're not meaning that everybody has to be puppets and just follow along, but we have to make sure the overall welfare comes first. And that's what he said here. He mentions it again, another example of Tradition 1, and we're going to go to page 76, and the title of this article is called Tradition 1. Every month for 12 months, he wrote an article on each tradition. This is December 47. And in this, um, he states, the first paragraph of that article, our whole AA program is, is uh, securely founded on the principle of humility, that is to say pers pers perspective, which implies, among other things, that we relate ourselves right, rightly to God and to our fellows, that we each see ourselves as we really are, a small part of a great whole. Seeing our fellows thus, we shall enjoy group harmony. That is how AA tradition can confidently state our common welfare comes first. So the key phrase, a small part of a great whole. And if I can vision myself as a small part of a great whole, a vision for, uh, for you is a great whole, and I'm a small part. And my equation, what I have, this vision I have, and uh, it's on this beach. And in, on this beach, there's 6 billion grains of sand on this beach. And all these 6 billion grains of sand are on this beach. And I'm one of those grains of sand on that beach. If I would not be on that beach, it would be another beach. It wouldn't be the same beach. My grain's not there. So it is vitally important that I'm there to make it be the beach that is complete with me. So I'm one grain of sand. But if at some point I somehow think that my grain of sand is greater than anybody else's, then eventually those 6 billion people on this thing called planet Earth don't function well. So I'm a small part of a great whole. I'm one little grain of sand of a greater thing. If I can look at a meeting, say a vision for you, if this meeting, if I'm a small part of a great whole, if I'm one grain of sand on this beach of 120 grains of sand, then I'm vitally a part, an important part of this beach of sand, but I'm still just one of 120. So I, if I can view myself as, a, as an uh, important vital part, but still only one out of 120, then I've got humility, which is ultimately what it's all about. And if I don't have humility, I won't have unity, because I will still be looking at it and thinking, my grain of sand is bigger than yours, and blah, blah, blah. So he makes it clear that's what tradition one is. And so if we don't have that perceptive, perception of what it means, then we will be in the problem and not in the solution. So can we understand that we are one grain of sand? We're not the whole beach. Okay. If we go to tradition two, what is the solution? And um, on this, I think the best thing he's written is the actual article, tradition two, and that's the very next article. So that's on page 78 in the book. And what he says on that one, it's called tradition two, January of 1948. So if we go to page 78 in the very first paragraph, this is his summation of what it means to have God in our group conscience. And sometimes people will think group conscience means, well, we have a meeting, we set it aside, we actually have something called a meeting called a group conscience, or it's a little part after the end of the meeting or whatever it is. Um, this description here goes far beyond that. So when we think of group conscience, we need not to think of it in such a limited way. 
Bill wrote in this paragraph describing the group conscience, I think really what it's meant to be and what we sometimes mistakenly don't really encompass it in its entirety. So let's read that paragraph. The very first paragraph says on that page, every AA group follows this same cycle of development. We are coming to realize that each group, as well as each individual, is a special entity, not quite like any other. Though AA groups are basically the same, each group does have its own special atmosphere, its own peculiar state of development. We believe that every AA group has a conscience. It is the collective conscience of its own membership. Daily experience informs and instructs this conscience. The group begins to recognize its own defects of character, and one by one, these are removed or lessened. As this process continues, the group becomes better able to receive right directions for its own affairs. I believe, of course, he's talking about God right there. Trial and error produces group experience, and out of corrected experience comes custom. When a customary way of doing things is definitely proved to be the best, then that custom forms into a, a tradition. The greater power is then working through a clear group conscience. I think it's a beautiful description of what step what tradition two is all about. So obviously, it's not at the only the formal meetings of uh, a group that uh, God gets to express Himself. It's in every single meeting and every little share and every little decision that's made regularly. It's how people interact. It's how people view themselves. But obviously, there's a, a group recovery. If the group is supposed to recover, it is eventually getting to a point where it can function at being recovered. The group must recover just as the individual must recover. And this is the description of how that occurs. The group is responsible to get more and more improve that conscious contact with God. That's its responsibility. And when it does that, as it was described in that paragraph, then God has a clear channel through the members that then speaks through the members in a collective conscience of how the group is to function. And it doesn't contain itself only in a group conscious meeting. It's in every conversation, in every thought that occurs about that meeting and how it functions. We do our own individual work and we become recovered, and then we do what this paragraph says, and the group does recover. And we become aware of our character defects, we note them, we uh, work on them to let them go. And it could be simple, just as simple a task as this. I'll make up a name. Here's Anne. Anne's talking to Jane. They're two members of this uh, vision for you. And they're after the meeting and they're talking. And one of them says to the second, Anne says to Jane, she says something that was repeated at the meeting. She says it to Jane and she makes an opinion about that. Well, it's okay, isn't it? It's just a little opinion. She talks about a third member that made a comment, and her and Jane are talking about that. No, I tell you, it's not that. Because what's happened is Tradition 12 has been violated. You put now personalities before principles. You're now gossiping about somebody in the meeting by repeating what they said and what you think about it, and you're violating Tradition 12. And that's a character defect. And that's the group's character defect, your individual defect that you'll do your step 10 work on, but it's also the group has an impact. Anytime we violate the traditions in any way, we weaken our group. So um, they talk, somehow it gets back to the third person somehow because gossip spreads. It becomes a crisis for that group. A vision for you is in a crisis. There's this gossip going on. We don't feel safe, et cetera, et cetera. 
a group conscious then emerges. It's decided, you know, we have to be very careful. We have to make sure that we do follow Tradition 12. We are not gossiping outside of the meeting, particular personal information shared, unless that person gives us consent. Of course we repeat the pr principles that are expressed in the meeting. Of course we do. We're always going to talk about principles, but we're never going to reveal identifying information about the individual who says it or about the group as a whole, because we have to keep pr principles first. And so we learn from that experience. We have a group conscious. We decide to really kind of buckle down here and be more consciously aware of it. The group then does follow that, and the result is that defect is lessened. So the group has recovered at a higher place it is than it was before. So the group is responsible for recovery, as well as the individual is responsible for recovery, and the way it does it is through Tradition 2, which states, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. So that's the solution for what is the problem. The problem is lack of unity, and the solution is God, power greater than ourselves, that will speak through us collectively. Those people that we put in position of leaders, and we'll put those in quotes because we know we're all leaders in our own way in our group, but we have leaders. And they are nothing more than servants. They are trusted servants for us to do what we have given them to do from our collective conscience. And if for some reason we see that things aren't going well and we think maybe the leaders are doing something, it is our responsibility to note this and try to find a way to do just what this paragraph says in order for us to learn from our experience and the group recovers. If it doesn't do that, uh, conflict and chaos continue to ensue. Eventually something will happen. Something will have to give be it the group disbands or that some people from that group form a second group, but we have to work and make sure that our group continually recovers or we do pay the price. We can't tread water in our individual recovery and our group can't tra tread water. Um, so we're taking active responsibility and making sure the group functions at a higher level at all times by studying the traditions and making sure they're followed and appropriately uh, improving the quality of the group through our efforts in that vein. So that's tradition two. Once we look at that, then we're going to look at basically, well, what is it that we ought not to do to make sure that our group has that conscious, that collective conscious of God speaking clearly through us. And for the traditions, they mention ten things. And the, the first one will be tradition three. Well, tradition three, there's um, an interesting place. Uh, they talked about what Bill learned when he had all these letters coming into the office. This is kind of a, I've heard this paragraph before, but we're going to go back to say, um, who is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, August of 46, and it's on page 37. So here's what Bill found out, and this is why the tradition came to be. Saying about since the book was published in 39, since that day all kinds of experiments with membership have been tried. The number of membership rules which have been made and mostly broken are legion. Two or three years ago, the central office asked the groups to list their membership rules and send them in. After they arrived, we set them all down. They took a great many sheets of paper. A little reflection upon these rules brought us to an astonishing conclusion. If all of these edicts had been enforced everywhere at once, it would have been practically impossible for any alcoholic to have ever joined Alcoholics Anonymous. About nine-tenths of our oldest and most best members could never have gotten by. So obviously it was a problem. There was all kinds of membership rules. What then came about in Tradition 3 is we're not going to have any membership rules. We're going to simply not have any. We're not in any way going to restrict anybody from being a member of OA. If you say you're a member, you're a member. And so on page 78 um, in the, the one Tradition 3, February 48, 
um, what it says there is um, the third tradition is a sweeping statement indeed. It takes in a lot of territory. Some people might think it's too idealistic to be practical. It tells every alcoholic in the world that he may become and remain a member of Alcoholics Anonymous so long as he says so. In short, Alcoholics Anonymous has no membership rule. So now us little rebellious people that want to find something we don't like so we can have our little disease keep doing whatever it wants to do is going to come in and find out, okay, what's the, ki- okay, what's the catch here? What is this about? No rules, no rules. Tell me what this is really about. No, no, really. You have you, no restrictions. We're not going to impose anything on you. Well, okay, fine, fine. Well, uh, what's the catch? I mean, what do, you ha- what do I have to pay? Actually, you don't have to pay anything. You can sit here for the rest of your life and never put a penny in. What do you mean I don't have to put money in it? And finally, what it does is it breaks down any resistance by anybody that comes in. Anybody can come in and be a member. There is nothing restriction. There is no way that you're going to have to be required to do anything. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit there. Um, so there's no reason that the person can then be focused on the meeting as a problem because there's nothing there. They're restricting on that individual with the self-will and right as, it walks, as that person walks in the door. It was a brilliant idea. It was fantastic. There was no conflict that way. Anybody can be a member. And also on a bigger scale, I'll give you an example. Um, in the 1940s, um, there was a couple of Afro-Americans wanted to attend the meeting. They believed that they needed the meeting. Uh, well, it was all white people. Let's just say that's what was going on at that time. And back in the 40s, not all white people liked Afro-Americans to be in a place with them. You know, we still had the, you know, the drinking fountains for whites and the drinking fountain for colors and et cetera, et cetera, throughout the South. So Bill was very brilliant. He did not ask the group, uh, can we let these couple guys in here, it was two or three, whatever it was, let's say it was two, can we let them in here? Because the vote would have been no. They would have justified not having him in. So that's not what the vote was. What he said to the group was, okay, do you think we should withhold for, for the rest of their lives them never, ever receiving what we have received through AA? Well, no. They have the right at some point to receive this information, of course, they should never have, never have it for the rest of their life. So in effect, they were voting that they had the right to have this information. So then Bill proposed, well, let's let them, okay, maybe we, you know, there's some concern about being a member, but let them just be a guest so they can kind of learn what we're doing because we do want them to have what we've received. So let them just sit in on the meeting. They're not members yet, but let them just sit in and kind of watch what's going on, and maybe they can then get that information and be helped by it. Okay, we'll let them be a guest. Well, lo and behold, we know what did happen. These guests then eventually became members, of course, because there was nothing wrong with them being able to sit in the meeting. And so what happened is Afro-Americans then were able to be a part of AA. So barriers were broken down. Um, and I just want to tell a story um, about – I'm going to run out of time here, um, so I may not need to be able to do it. But a story – well, I'll save it for later, but it was a great story about Tradition Three and this whole idea of Afro-American males and – not being able to be a part of it, but I'm going to run out of time. So let me go on to um, the fact that basically this is going to be inclusive and never exclusive. So we just want to make sure that we do that. If we go to Tradition 4, and then that will again be, uh, we're going to go to page 80 on Tradition 4. Tradition 4 is the name of the article. It was March of 48. And uh, what it says here, that Tradition 4 is a specific application of general principles already outlined in Tradition 1 and 2. So what it's saying is when we look at the, the basic uh, principles in 1 and 2, it's just going to be expounded in Tradition 4, which says that the groups will not 
groups will not be from anybody above this group telling that group how to run their show. There's going to be local autonomy. The group gets to decide how to do its business because if we are in the solution, then the co collective conscious of those members are doing their work to have that group recover, and as they do so, they don't need anybody from above telling them how to run the show. They're doing their work, and it's occurring, and so they don't need anybody above them telling them how to do it, and they get to have local autonomy. And so the that is really the essence of Tradition 2. Then that's why Tradition 4 was expressed, that we are not going to mess up with those individual groups doing their thing. Now, if they're not doing their thing, they're going to struggle. But they'll learn their growing pains, and they'll still come forth, because we've also had that. As, Bill, as I read of Pashis about what Bill was doing, you know. He was trying to make sure everybody worked the program according to him. So they get that. But the one qualifier in this is if this group with the local autonomy does something that harms the neighboring groups or harms A as a whole, that should not occur. They have their autonomy, but they don't have the right to do something harmful to those around them. So in that case, they then consult the neighboring group, say this is what we're about, and the neighboring group can let them know how it impacts them so you're not, you're not an island. You need to be uh, consciously aware of other groups and how your actions impact them, and you need to be checking with them as a mark of just courtesy and consideration of the people around you. And if you're doing something that sounds pretty odd and different, you may want to check with the main office to make sure that it doesn't impact negatively the whole organization as a whole. So that's Tradition 4. Tradition 5 um, is on page 82, and this is in April 48 called Tradition 5. And uh, basically what it says, uh, tradition 5 is pretty simple, and it says uh, in that paragraph, how well we need to heed the principle that it is better to do one thing supremely well than many things badly. So this tradition basically is just letting us know we're not going to do anything but, uh, you know, working with compulsive readers and helping them recover. We're going to do that extremely well. We're not going to get into anything else. We're going to remain focused, tight in everything we need to do, and do it well for people. That's our job. So let's not get into anything else and dilute our message because we're putting our time and energy in things other than what really we're met about. And again, that's vitally important. If we get into other stuff, we're not doing what we should be doing, which is being recovered and help others be recovered. If we go to the very next article, Tradition 6, page 83, the last paragraph on that page, this is May of 48, and it says uh, on Tradition 6 that basically we would like to divide the spiritual from the material Confine the AA movement to its sole aim and ensure however wealthy as individual as we may become, that AA itself shall always remain poor. We dare not risk the distractions of corporate wealth. Years of experience have proven these principles beyond doubt. They have become certainties. So in this tradition, it's very simple. It's basically saying to all of us, you know, let's not get caught up property, money, prestige, you know, let's not do any of that. We'll keep it simple. Just do what we need to do. Let's not be throwing our energy and time out there buying property and putting a Vision for Use uh, uh, club, a Vision for Use treatment center. No, no, no. Way past what we're supposed to be doing. You want to do that? That's great. You can have a little committee that are members of your group go out and independently in their own names create that treatment center, but it cannot have the name of the group, which now becomes legally responsible for the administration and everything happens in it. Um, so it's fine. Go ahead and form your little groups, but make sure it stays separate from the group, a separate entity, incorporated if you need, but not be tied in with your group or OA as a whole. Tradition 7, uh, we kind of know that Tradition 7, of course, there's some things about Tradition 7. First, we cannot take money or any other material resource from somebody other than OA members. We cannot have somebody outside of us 
given us money because what obviously happens is they begin to want what they want from the group because they're giving us money. And we're beholding to them because now we've got, even if it's a loan, we now are beholding to them and what they want, and so now we lose our focus because we have somebody outside deciding how to run the group, and the group is supposed to be autonomous. We can't do that if we get outside contributions. And, of course, we need to be fully self-supporting. We need to be able to pay all our own bills. We need to be responsible. So it's good for us. The second, in part, sometimes people don't know this, that you, there's also restrictions on the maximum amount of money that you can give away. For example, you can give up to $5,000 a year if you want, but you can't give more. If you give more, the excess money will be returned to you. If you want to put OA in a will, and, the, and the, what it ends up being is worth more than $5,000, then that will be returned to you. Because we cannot let even individual members assume a very large amount of the financial resources of a group or OA as a whole, because then they want to call the shots. They want to decide how that group is run. They want to decide, because see, they got the money, so they have to be listened to and have more weight than everybody else. And we know from tradition too, it's a collective group conscious. Everybody's equal in forming that conscious. So we can't have that, and so that can't be so. Um, a couple of examples um, that I just want, I want to mention is at one point, uh, this, I can't remember what year this was, but uh, what happened, AA realized that there were so many big books going out to everybody, uh, all these other groups, OA, treatment centers, that the very small markup they had on each individual book of Alcoholics Anonymous that little bit of markup, which was a little, but the, the volumes, I mean, they, they've sold millions and millions of copies. So that little markup, if they took that little markup away, AA wouldn't be fully self-supporting. They would then be in the red and not in the black. So they said to the fellowship, we're violating Tradition 7 by this. We're not going to stop people from getting our big book, but what we're saying to the fellowship, we want to mark the price of the big book back down to cost with no markup, no profit at all. It will be exactly the cost to produce it. And we ask you, the fellowship, to increase your donations, your group donations, to make up the lost revenue, because it's going to be quite a bit, you know. Can you give us more money and not mark it up so that we can be fully self-supporting? We must protect this tradition. The response was, and I remember it happening, the big book's price went down a dollar. And I said, what happened? How did it go down a dollar? A was making too much money. We have to reduce, they had to reduce the cost, so we're gonna, we get now cut and we don't have to pay as much to buy it. And I thought, how many organizations in the world reduce their, their biggest profit item, which is the big book, is now not going to make any money at all in order to, to protect this tradition? That states how important this tradition is. So that made them fully self-supporting because now the groups increased their donation. Um, all right, I got another example. Let's just go on to eight. We can get through these. Um, tradition eight basically is telling us that um, we're never to give any payment to anyone for any 12-step work ever. You are never to get any money for it, not a penny. It is to be done because it is 12-step work. You add money to that, that's not the, at all the spirit of step 12. Um, if you are invited, I've been invited to be like a put on big book retreats. And yes, if I'm going to go to Fargo, North Dakota, I wouldn't just be hanging out there for a weekend. Yes, they put me on a plane, they brought me there, and I stayed there at the retreat center. Yes, they do pay expenses, those that, things that you would incur in money that you would not have if you hadn't gone. That's just paying the expenses. I never got a penny in my pocket. They just paid the cost of me coming. That's okay. That's being responsible. But 12-step work, you are not going to get any money in your pocket for um, doing something. Um, you can get expenses paid, but that's all. 
And, of course, as part of this tradition, if somebody does work, special services, like a secretary at a, in a group office, and they're putting a lot of time in, they get paid, just like a, any other human being that's sitting in there at that desk answering that phone will get paid appropriate wages for doing that. That's not considered 12-step work, sorting the mail, answering the phone, uh, sending out correspondence as directed by the board of that inner group. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's not 12-step uh, work. Tradition 9, uh, basically, basically it's stating in Tradition 9 that the least amount of bureaucracy possible should always exist, that we should not be establishing a hierarchy and all these additional cumbersome things. We must need to keep it simple at all times, and that's vitally important. If we get bureaucratic, even a little vision for you get starts to get all kinds of stuff, that will be detrimental. Tradition 10 is telling us that we cannot have any opinion on outside issues, and this is tremendously powerful that there has never been in 77 years of Alcoholics Anonymous a major catastrophe uh, ca uh, conflict because of a stance they took on any outside issues. So they just don't have an opinion on them. Individuals can have an opinion, but the group as a whole can't decide who should be president come November. AA is not going to make a recommendation of who they think should, everybody should vote for. <laughs> they don't do that. Thank God they've learned that lesson. Uh, if we go to Tradition 11, and let's go to page 91. It's called Tradition 11, October 49. And in here it says, um, in, on that page, on Tradition 11, the, the future poses no greater problem or challenge to A than how best to preserve a friendly and vital relation to all the world about us. Success will rest heavily upon right principles, a wise vigilance, and the deepest personal responsibility on the part of every one of us. Nothing less will do. Else our brother may again turn his face to the wall because we did not care enough. So basically what Tradition 11 is saying, that we're not going to go and start uh, messing up with all these great relationships. We have what AA has this unbelievable track record. No one has even begun to come close to it of, su of success. As that word sees it, that is people that were drinking now are not drinking and they're not going back to drinking. They look at it from that perspective. They're the ones that are the, out there telling everybody how great they are. We don't, we don't need to pump up ourselves. Our success rate is already speaks volume. The, the actual behavior, we don't need to promote ourselves. So we do never, we never promote. We only just let the attraction and we let all the people out there speak for us and do all of it because they personally believe in us. And that's far greater than us trying to drum up support and make people follow our wishes because we think they, we know best and they have to do what we want. So um, it's vitally important, um, and we can get into some stuff about things that some, oh, I've seen people put signs up and put bus stops and all that, but how does that really follow Tradition 11? And there has been a lot of discussion on that. Tradition 12, um, if we go to page 93, it's Tradition 12, November 48, and um, this is what it says here about all the traditions. A glance at the 12 traditions will instantly assure every, every, anyone that giving up is the essential idea of them all. In each, tra each tradition, the individual or the group is asked to give up something for our general welfare. And it goes on and lists which each tradition asks us to give up. We've already covered that, but the key is it's about giving up, which is, again, remember we have a group, we have an individual ego where we have to let go, e legal reduction through our steps. What the traditions do is the group's ego has to be let go. Each, each tradition lets go of more and more of that ego. So self-will cannot run through the group. The group self-will cannot exist. And our group conscious, as I said before, is going to have it get a higher and higher level of recovery. So it states um, it, on that page, uh, the very end of the beginning of page 94, it says, the 12 points of tradition are little else than a specific application of the spirit of the 12 steps of recovery to our group life and to our relationships 
with society in general. The recovery steps would make each individual AA whole and one with God. The 12 points of tradition would make us one with each other and whole with the world about us. Unity is our aim. So constantly, again, is what we said, that's what we need to do. Um, I would like to, I'm running out of time, so let me end it with the last paragraph. Um, This is page 108. It's called Why Can't We Join A2, October 47. And Bill writes in this, and I'd like to end it with this, which I think really sums up really what it's ultimately about, and I would think probably the goal of the vision for you. He says, perhaps we AAs can become a new kind of human society. To a degree hitherto unknown, AA may be able to function upon the power of its own fundamental principles rather than upon the prestige or inspiration of of a highly personalized leadership. Thus the whole can become of transcending importance over any part. Continued unity and success can then mostly depend upon God as we understand him, working vitally in thousands of hearts rather than in a few. All right, with that I'd like to close and I'd like to turn that back to Alea. Thank you very much, Ruth, for your revealing, thorough, and insightful overview of the 12 traditions. As stated previously, we will now have a question and answer period, so we certainly encourage questions. Uh, So we thank you for those. We also want, want to request that in respecting Tradition 12, we not mention any names or specific meetings as we direct these questions. Uh, Please do not speak specifically about a person or a group because that's not appropriate, as we have just learned. And you certainly can pose questions regarding your personal experience as as long as we do not label uh, who we are talking about in our question. So for instance, as an example, you can say, I had a conflict with an individual at my face-to-face meeting, or I had a conflict with some behavior during a meeting. That type of question does not violate the principles because it's not getting into personalities. So with that, I open the floor now. If you'd like to pose a question, please press star 1 to unmute. You can jump in. The water is warm. Well, uh, Ruth, hi. This is Anne Marie. Hi, Anne Marie. Hi. I'd, I'd like to ask a question, and thank you so much for all the information and, and research you have um, you have given us. Um, uh, just learned a lot. My question is, if if um, we wanted to start begin a group in our area, a face-to-face group in our area, would you suggest that that first meeting? Um, be with recovered compulsive eaters that um, are looking to go out and help other people rather than a bunch of people that are, are, you know, maybe one or two recovered people and a bunch of other people who are really struggling and looking to find the answer and form the group that way. Um, How would you suggest that? Thank you. Well, we can break it down into two things. If if you 
want to form a group and you label yourself as a group, there is no, no membership rule. So anybody that wants to uh, attend your meeting and be a member of your group can do so. So it's really not you to decide, well, do we have some people struggling with food? Yeah, they get to be a part of the group if they want to. Um, the other issue is uh, leadership. And obviously, if one is recovered, they're going to be able to have a more clear channel of God speaking through them and the group because they're not in their food. Um, I couldn't begin to have any kind of clear idea of what God wanted for me because I already had a God. It was called food, which was destroying me. So I couldn't get past that to really understand the, the overall purpose of really what was best. And so I really needed not to take the lead and be a leader. There needed to be some leader that could guide and I could give some support, but I couldn't really take a leadership role because I was such a mess in my food when I first came in. Uh, so it would be ideal that you would have some uh, recovered individuals to become the elder statesmen. Um, I didn't use the AA 12 and 12 today because I wanted to get to the original, how these were created. But in on page 135 on AA 12 and 12, and I love that page, talks about elder statesmen. If you can get a couple of elder statesmen and they can kind of take that lead and start the group, it's fine to do that. At some point, depending upon the maturity of the group, uh, usually around six months is pretty normal, uh, but I'm not saying that's true for everybody. If there's a lot of really recovered people, you could maybe do it in less time. Uh, it might take a little more, but at some point, these elder statesmen need to have a group conscious where they actually have a meeting and talk about how they can phase out, and some of these people now that have been, become recovered can assume some roles because there should be rotation of service. Um, that's part of the traditions. We don't want to let this highly personalized leadership run the show. We don't want one, two people calling all the shots forever. You need to be on the sidelines, and anytime available, you, you can be consulted in how to work the group. So um, ideally, you have some recovered people. It doesn't need to be a huge number, but you have those people that kind of get together and say, let's get this going. Here are some basic format. We've been in meetings. We kind of know how they work. And let's announce that we are farming a new group. And when do so, you're going to bring in any and everybody that comes in that wants to be in. And, of course, not everybody's going to be recovered. That's highly unlikely. So um, you've asked two questions. One, can people that are not re recovered be there? Yes, of course they can be there. Actually, they get a choice to be there if they want. And two, it's ideal to have leadership to be able to figure out exactly how to do this and have God's conscience come through you. That's ideal. That's what I would say. So, yes, hunt up the people that are recovered, kind of get together and say, do we want a group? Say yes, form that group, and then anybody that wants to join can join in. And when it's, when it's mature enough, then rotate out of some of your responsibilities and let these newer people that have now become recovered uh, come in and take some of the role and so that you're not the bleeding deacon that's hemorrhaging through all through the meeting <laughs> because you have to run the show forever. Uh, so that would be the ideal. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, Ruth. Thank you very much. And again, Leah, thank you for setting up this uh, specialty meeting. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for the question. Good morning. This is Stu. I have a question for you, Ruth. Hi. Hi, Ruth. Good morning. We'll hear from Du first, please. Du, go ahead. Okay, um, I had a question regarding group conscience. Um, I know that you said that uh, that there shouldn't be any gossiping or anything going on, which um, I, I totally get that today, you know, about um, 
not speaking um, about individuals or different um, different things, but I was concerned about the fact that um, how how is it that a group does take a group conscience? Is it that um, you know you're having a group conscience and then after the end of the group conscience, you get to know that you're having a group conscience, or is it something that um, is spoken of, or someone addresses it as a group conscience? Um, and exactly um, when that group conscience occurs, who is the one who takes the group conscience? Is it recovered people or non-recovered people, or is it a collective of those people to take that group conscience? Okay, do um, I think you're saying group conscious meeting. Um, of course, as I said before, there's a lot of ways group conscious is happening without a formal meeting, but uh, you're talking about the group meeting. Um, what would happen, I mean, again, you want to maximize people's awareness of what's happening and their availability to speak in that meeting. So usually you announce it. You announce it in advance. So I would say my meeting, my weekly meeting, we would announce it like two weeks in advance. We're going to have a group conscious in two weeks. We're going to let everybody know. My particular group, uh, my particular home group, we have one meeting a year that we set aside exclusively for a group conscious. Now, we have 30 to 40 people in there. We had our last group conscious. We had over 30 people. And so we had announced it to say we're not having our regular meeting. This is our annual meeting of the year where we spend an hour and a half and we do nothing but look at ourselves and really go in depth and see what we need to do to improve the quality of our meeting. And that's all we do. We don't have a regular meeting. Um, so everybody knows in advance. And then we tell them the next week. And so if you don't want to go to a group conscience, you just don't want to or whatever, don't show up. Go to another meeting. But you knew in advance that we were going to have it. So, yes, you would announce that we're now going to have a group conscience. Otherwise, how does the person know to make sure they show up? How does the, the person know um, that that's what they're in the middle of discussing, unless they are aware that that's what they're discussing? So, yes, it would be, you would need to let everybody know. As far as the group conscience, my view is if you come in, and I've done this, I've come into a meeting. It's now had a group conscience at the end. Our meeting also has at the, once a month, we have a little small 15-minute group conscience at the end just to check in and make sure everything is going well, in addition to the big group conscience meeting. If I come into one of those meetings and it's not my home group and I'm just visiting and I'm not part of it and I really don't know its whole, you know, what's going on, just group conscious in general, I think it's not respectful of me to get in there and start giving opinions of how the group should be because it's not my meeting. So if I stumble into a meeting, I just walk into it, I didn't know it was going to have a group conscience. Uh, I can sit there and listen, that's fine, but I don't believe I should enter into an opinion of how that group should function when it's not my group and I don't attend it. Um, so I believe that in courtesy, I don't open my mouth. Unless somebody says, ask me a particular question. I mean, I can answer it for them. But I don't do that because it's not my group. So uh, I, I think that's being respectful. Um, the um, other thing about group conscience, there's several things here. Um, this is my opinion that if I am feeling anger or fear in the middle of a discussion, a particular issue in a group conscience, I know enough about my recovery that God is not going to be speaking through me. Because if I'm full of anger or fear, then God doesn't get a voice. It's just going to be self-will. And I need to tame myself down and get that under control. I mean, basically say, God, you know, here it is and blah, blah. And I'm not going to be operating out of anger and fear when I open my mouth. If I cannot do that, 
and I still saw her anger and fear, then I also need to be quiet, even if it's my own home meeting and as a group conscious, because I'm not going to have God speaking through me. And if I want to honor God, I should keep my mouth shut if I'm not coming from a place of love or God in my discussion. So personally, I also would, I would not speak if I'm not in a proper state. Um, I had a sponsoree who went to world service for the business conference, and we had a discussion of this. And her and she actually presented that to some of the people there that if people were getting worked up on an issue, then they should abstain. Their vote should be abstained, so they're not voting yay or nay for something if they're feeling anger and fear. So I think that's the second thing that we need to understand. You know, let's just not run our mouth at stuff. That's not going to help the group. Uh, it's our job to go and do step 10 work and not, and not have anger or fear on an issue, and then you, of course, can speak because now God can speak through you. So we've got to do our homework. As far as um, the, the meeting and um, you announce it in advance, people then are know, they know of it. They come in. Um, usually you have a moderator. I've done the moderating for our home group, and that means as a moderator, uh, my job, I believe, is not to give an opinion because my job is to do some moderating. So I'm neutral. Uh, you know, we get what are the issues we want to discuss. We condense the issues, and we kind of vote on uh, what we think. And if there's not an overwhelming consensus on something, everything stays as is. But it's not my job to direct that group conscious to turn out the way I want. If I want to have a real strong opinion, though it's not anger and fear, then I need not to be the moderator. The moderator's job is to make sure that we maximize the collective conscious's ability to speak as God speaks through them, and so I shouldn't get in the way of that. I just need to be the facilitator of a sacred space in order for that to reach its maximum level. So I need not to be got my own agenda and let that group do that because then I'm, I'm trying to do two roles, and I don't do either one well. So I, I, I don't propose anything on a vote um, because it then comes from me, and it looks like I'm running the show, and I'm not supposed to. God's supposed to speak through me. So as a moderator, you need to just do your job and do it and do it well and don't get in there and start trying to force an issue to come out your way because that's not really a group conscious. That you just setting something up to get what you want, and that's not group conscious. Group conscious is the collective conscious of God coming through everybody. Um, so I would also say that would be important. Is there, is there anything else you mentioned? I think I've kind of covered it, that it really is a, it's a, it's a moment in time where the group takes an inventory of itself, a group inventory, of how better to have God speak through everybody collectively. And uh, we do our homework so that we are properly in the proper place to speak, and if we can't, don't speak in that group conscience. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess um, the, the reason why I'm asking is because there's a lot of people that may not be recovered and would want to voice their, you know, voice their opinion or voice their concerns, and I was wondering if that was also appropriate for them. Uh, in that situation, the group conscience has the right to make some determination of who can speak or not in the group conscience. So if the group conscience has previously decided that anybody attending, or let's say anybody that's a regular member of that group, gets to share... If they impose some restriction on sharing based on level of abstinence, then that group conscious has to do that prior to the moment in time that you're talking about. If the group decides to limit it, um, they would need to collectively decide, and they would have to have a reason why they would want to restrict that group conscious discussion 
maybe somebody can observe, but to actually speak, they would have to make that a determination that that group in local autonomy of Tradition 4 can state that that's what they believe they should do in their group conscious meeting. So the actual issue of making the determination has to come from the group conscience that uh, those that are not absent by X amount of time, whatever, if that's the condition, has to be decided by that group conscience. It cannot be decided by one person because that's not a group conscience again. So if the group conscience comes to the conclusion that they want the shares to be limited to people with, I don't know, whatever you want to claim, 30 days of absence, 60, 90, whatever you, uh, I, that's not the point here, whatever it is, then the group has to collectively decide that's, what, that's how they want their group consciousness to be. And then, because that vote has been taken, subsequent group conscience then follows that. But at any time, somebody can say, hey, I don't like that. Let's change it and actually change that requirement. Uh, but it has to come from the group, not one individual, to make that limitation. Um, now, for uh, the when I would like to say um, in my home meeting when we do uh, group conscience, now, I said there were over 30 people in the room in our last group conscience. How well do you think we're going to get an overwhelming consensus of things when you've got over 30 people in the room? And some of them are people that have just walked in the door literally just less than a month. You've got people that are recovered. You've got the whole spectrum of people in that room. And so what we tend to do is think success, I put that in quotes, is based on results. And if we get results, then it was successful. If we don't get, quote, results of some vote and where people agree to change something, then it wasn't successful. I don't believe that's so. There's two forms of success. One success is that, okay, here's a task we need to get done, and by the end we have accomplished that task, so we can say we were successful. The second component that's equally important in a group conscious that we seem to downplay, but is, I think is as important as the other, is the process. If we have a horrible process to get to the results, then what, that's not group conscious from God. That's just somebody railroading something through, and now we claim it's successful because it got railroaded through, and nobody really jointly agreed that that was a good idea. It's not based exclusively on a result. That's important, but equally has to be the process in which you go through to get that result. And that process has to be a way to generate a collective conscious with God expressing through us. And we have to make sure that is also occurring. So what does that mean? It means that you create a sacred space for everybody in the room in which their value, they're, they're valued. Um, their opinions are important. They, you can have some restraint, like time limit on how you share. You can, I guess, impose uh, some on how much absence to share. But it's a collective decision to do so. It's never an individual's decision to do so. And that moderator needs to maximize that sense of safety and security in being, and people being able to express what they want without being hammered about doing that. So you go through this. This is what happened in our last year's conscience. We had a major discussion. After it was all said and done, we didn't come to a, great, a, a consensus. And so did you think that was a failure? It was absolutely not. People said, gee, my family never talked like this, respectful towards each other. Everybody's voice was heard. Everybody was valued. And in the end, that the feeling valued by individual members was as important as getting results. We got results. We got people feeling when they left the room, at least they said to us, least I was heard and respect. My opinion was worthy. It's never been worthy before I joined OA. Thank you for giving me the opportunity that I was had a time in here and, I was, and it was expressed even though it didn't go my way. You see, that's as important as the result. We must have both simultaneously at a high level to have a quality group conscience. You have to have the sacred space where people get to express themselves. That's important. And then you have to have results. And you can't have one or the other because you're only getting half the story. 
And that's my opinion, so that's why the moderator needs to be the one that creates that space and doesn't have her agenda that she's trying to promote to get certain things done because that, and then she gets into results, and she has a job to create the sacred spice of the process. Her greatest task is to create the, a, a sacred process in which God can maximize in expression through a collective conscience. If she's done her part, then the results, whatever they need to be, will be whatever God has, and that's, that's fine. We don't need to get into results because that's self-will. God's will is the result. We need to just say, do the, get the process in there, and what needs to be happening will come through, from God through us. And so do not do a group conscious without creating a great um, environment in which that process can be maximized. Do that, the results will take care of themselves. Does that answer it? Yeah, that does answer it. Um, I, if you could bear with me, I have two more questions. Um, my other question, and, and it's kind of like in line uh, with, with the group conscience, is that it says, our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. And um, I, I'm, I'm not too familiar with the whole uh, society of things and the um, archy of kind of like doing things, but um, are... Are the people called leaders, and if so, um, are they? Uh, how does that tie in with being trusted servants? Well, you're a leader because you are a trusted servant. It starts off the statement states that you are a trusted servant. Our leaders are but trusted servants, and what that means is their job is to carry out the wishes of the collective conscience of the group. Their job is not to lead in the sense of I'm going to get them to do a certain result because then I become the so-called conscious of the group and I'm one person. I am but one grain of sand on the beach. I'm not the only grain of sand on the beach. That's not appropriate. I am, I'm a small but very important part of the whole. And so to honor the whole, to maximize unity, I need to know my place but not, but not think it's greater than my place. So for uh, a trusted servant says, you, I get the directions from the group conscience, and I carry those directions out as I've been told by the group conscience to do. So that's my job. Now, for some reason, you think the group conscience was really wacko and said something that was really like way off, the, I don't know. You decided, <laughs> there's an example in this book where Bill says, well, you know, the group decided to go ahead and, uh, and spend their, their seventh edition on a preacher that would give them a sermon every day, and they would collect it from the proceeds from the nightclub they own in order to pay for the preacher. So that's a pretty absurd example. Uh, the nightclub and the preacher will go away, but it's a pretty absurd example. But people can come up with some really interesting ideas. If you believe that this is violating the traditions, you can bow and say, I can, I'm not able to do this. Under my understanding of traditions, I don't believe that this follows it. You have the right, though, as a group to do what you want, and then you simply bow out of the position of carrying it out because it goes against what you believe is right as you see it. That's fine. You let them know up front that I, I just can't seem to do this task. I just don't see it. And if it's a good meeting, you'll sit down and have another group conscious and really talk that out to see why you feel that way and what can be resolved about it. Because you may be right, but you may be wrong. Um, so uh, leaders are but trusted servants. Their job is to find out what the collective conscious is, which is God speaking through them, and make sure that God's wishes are carried out. That's what they are. They are trusted servants. They have been given this responsibility by the group as a whole to get that done. Uh, they do not govern. They do not direct outcomes. Leaders do not govern. They do not try to get a certain outcome from the group because the only outcome that we are to get is what God wants us to have 
through the group conscious. And so we are to maximize the ability of the group to come up with that collective conscious of God speaking, and then we carry it out because it's God's wish and we're carrying out God's wish. That's not governing. If I try to get what I want from the group and I set it up to get what I want, then I am playing God, and God cannot express through the group conscious, and then I am governing. And it's very clear that you do, you do not govern. So Bill was very strong in that statement. It's the only time he talks in the, in the, I mean, the traditions that way. They do not govern. It's very clear. There's no wiggle room in that. So we are never to try to dictate outcome from, from any of our work in the group. And if we get caught up in that, just bow out. Don't take on that task. Just remove ourselves from, if it's a moderator or leader of a group, just don't do it because we know we're too much in a crap and we haven't cleaned up ourselves well enough. Get some more step 10 work. Bow out of that responsibility. Somebody else can do a better job and clean up our own stuff. Once we've done that, we can then at some later date come in and, and hold the role of a leader and make sure that the group conscious gets taken care of. Does that explain it? Yeah, but are they called leaders or are they called trusted servants in, in a group setting? Um, usually the common terminology I hear in meetings is leader. I don't usually hear the term trusted servant. But they really are trusted servants. It's just we don't using, use that term, at least where I live. We don't normally say, well, okay, this is the, okay, James, the trusted servant for today's meeting. Um, we don't usually use that terminology, but that's the role the person plays. We just say leader. Um, it's commonly said leader, but it's really one and the same. A leader, a true leader, is one that leads by example and not by force. You must be that example of what you, as best you can understand, God would want you to be. That will be far more impactful on your group than anything that you try to do by trying to get what you want from the group, whatever that may be, even if it's the best of intention. So um, it's really one and the same. Uh, thank you for that. Now my last question, and I promise I'll, <laughs> then I'll, I'll move on. Um, the 12th tradition, um, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to... Um, place principles before personality. And my understanding of anonymity is at the level of press, radio, and television. But here it says anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. And I was wondering if you can um, expound on that because I've always had a, a, a problem just understanding that that, that one particular um, part there of where anonymity is the whole foundation of this program. Okay. Um, anonymity, um, I can't find this particular spot in here, but basically says anonymity is group humility. You know, we have individual humility. We're supposed to get to that once we're recovered. And Tradition 12 asks us, uh, well, it's supposed to, it says here, well, now I found it, page 93, the last very line there, it says Tradition 12 in its mood of humble anonymity plainly enough, comprehends the preceding 11. So what anonymity means, it's group humility, group humility. Our overall goal is individual humility. That's a spiritual awakening. We become humble because we sure weren't before we came in. And our group wants to have humility, but it's a group humility, a group humility. And if we look at the definition, what is the definition of humility? If we go to page 58 in AAs 12 and 12, and it defines humility on that page, and what it says is that humility amounts to a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could be. I think that's a great definition. So if the group knows clearly who it is 
and it puts its efforts to try to sincerely become what it could be, whatever God wants it to be, then that's a higher level of group recovery. So anonymity is group humility. If we have the group is humble, and then, of course, we're going to put principles before personalities because that's what humility is. It's not trying to make ourselves bigger than we are or less than we are. We're just knowing who we are exactly. We're trying to do what God wants. The group is trying to do the same thing, and it's going to put those principles first. So anonymity fundamentally is humility. If I have humility, then I'm going to practice anonymity. It's, it's going to have to happen. It, it cannot not happen. Because if I'm really trying to do God's will, I'm trying to do as best I can. If the group is trying to do God's will through a collective conscience, then the group and the desire to do that will aspire for these higher principles, which makes one fun function as a higher spiritual level. Collectively, the group does it. They're obviously going to do that and not be putting principles. They're going to put those principles before they put the personalities involved. It just logically follows. It will follow, and that's what tradition is saying, you know, that um, – and an enmity the spiritual foundation of our traditions, every reminder to place principles before personalities. So, of course, that's what we're going to be trying to do. Not, not that we always follow through. You know, we're going to mess up. We all mess up. We're human. But at least we're aspiring to do that. So I would say anonymity in its fundamental part is group humility. And we can talk about Tradition 11, which is specifically how to address the media. Uh, we can get into that. Um, we're not actually at that point with a vision for you, but obviously it can be discussed in more length when we just do a whole discussion on Tradition 11. But there, that's, it came about through long struggle that, you know, we have to ha be humble. And if we're humble, we cannot be presenting ourselves as AA as a whole and the media think that we represent all of AA. And then we stumble and fall and eat compulsively, you know, because then we're the representative. See, that gets into all kinds of stuff when we're not humble. And so it's very important that we don't do that, that we maintain our humility, our, which is anonymity, at a public level. All right. Is that good? Well, I just wanted to ask you um, anonymity in this particular in this particular step here, uh, or tradition, I should say. Um, is it at the level of press, radio, and television, or is it just what you just said that anonymity is the group humility? Um, the, the question, the one about press media, that's traditional eleven. And it will address anonymity at the public level in Tradition 11. So it is a component of anonymity is what you're mentioning. But Tradition 12 is a more encompassing view of, of anonymity. It is that at public level, but it's also at even the group level and not gossiping about its other members. And you're not even at a public level. So it's a more, it's a more expansive, comprehensive view of anonymity is in Tradition 12. Because you've already practiced it in 11, and now at 12 it's telling you, in all things, we're going to put principles for personality, not just at the public level. So I'm saying group humility, meaning it's the overall result of working these 12 traditions, which will encompass more than just the public, um, public level of AA. So I guess Thank that you, Ruth. Oh, I'm sorry. I I just was going to say, um, does that, that encompass um, the anonymity there encompasses confidentiality? That's kind of like what I'm hearing. Uh, confidentiality is a term that's used by professionals providing like medical services, uh, mental health services. They're not exactly the same anonymity and confidentiality. One is a, is a professional term of regarding this professional relationship with this person that you're receiving services from. Anonymity comes from, it's a little different. It's basically coming from the 12 steps, really have 
popularized that concept, they're not identical. There are commonalities of those two things, but they're not the same thing. They do overlap. There's a lot of similarities between the two, but they are not identical, no. Confidentiality is something that causes you to sign a consent to release information, which is in a certain time limit that you're giving somebody permission to release information, et cetera, et cetera. It is a professional legal term that has to be complied with. This is not, um, it's not on that same level. So the confidentiality has some components that would not be applicable to OA. To OA. Um, it's, it is different, but it's very similar. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Du, for the questions. Anyone else with a question this morning for Ruth? Hi, this is Susie. Susie, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth, so much. Thank you, Leah. Um, my question is about how to encourage people to take service positions. The, my home group well, used to be about 30 people, and now it's down to 15 20, and um, for the last year, we've had people volunteering to be secretary, not volunteering, and uh, the person that's now secretary says she doesn't want to continue unless there's another person with her. In fact, that's what was decided by intergroup, and they said we need to close the meeting, but in the meantime, we keep the group has been going on, and my question is, you know, what to do about it? And since um, people are not helping put away things, we've the last couple of weeks we've lost pages of the format. A book is missing. A timer is missing. That's one of my questions, what to do about that. Um, another question is how to encourage people to donate at least enough what was decided to cover the rent, which is not always covered, and how to encourage people to come on time. Very often we start the meeting 15 minutes late. Okay, so you've, you've got some red flags um, indicating there's some problems. Nobody's wanting to volunteer to do service. People are showing up late. Um, so it again starts with um, step 10 work. First thing we all, I believe, have to do is do our own step 10 work. So each of us does Step 10 is meeting steps four through nine. And if each individual member um, would be willing to go and do their own work, uh, work with somebody that's not emotionally invested in uh, resolving this issue, however it is with you, so they're not having their own agenda with you, but you go and do your own piece. So if each individual member did their own work and found out, it could be simply, I'm angry that nobody's stepping forth. That's a 10-step issue, because if I come from anger or fear, then I do not have love, which is where God comes from. So I'm not allowing God to speak through me, and all people are going to hear is my anger towards them. And who wants to even bother? Shut down, close the ears, don't even bother to hear what you've got to say now, because you're just coming at anger with me. That's just a natural reaction a lot of people feel. So, um, so I have to find ways for me to clean up all of my stuff even if it's just an issue of how I feel about what's happening. And if each individual could agree to go and do their own work and clean their own house, then they could have a more elevated spiritual interaction about what do we do about what's going on with the group. So that's where I would start. Sometimes we want to rush in and fix it and make it work out, but if we're not properly connected with God, it's self-will, and self-will will only drive more of that to happen, not less. 
Um, what's happening individually in the meeting, I don't know. Um, but we have to start with us cleaning up our side of the street. Now, let's say you say, okay, I'm going to do that, and no one, says, no one else says they're going to do it. Well, maybe they've told you by their example that they don't wish the meeting to continue. Okay. Um, all right, I cannot force a meeting to continue if no one's willing to look at their own 10 steps and do whatever they need to do to find out what they can do to make sure that we're operating in a collective conscious of God speaking through us. Um, then that's the natural consequence of that not being done. Um, so I, I don't really don't know specifically what's going on in the meeting, but before I call the group conscience, uh, we would be, can we agree at least to maybe spend, I don't know, this month, when we have our next group conscience next month, can we agree to have everybody do 10-step work so that we can come in here and really carry, carry on a discussion that's got coming through us. It, again, if people are not willing to do that, uh, or you know, as long as they understand what's being asked, then that's pretty well, their actions are pretty, speaking pretty loudly. So um, there is something going on. What it is, I do not know. Uh, but I do know that if we can do our part, it means that we are abstinent, we have had a profound personality change, we have recovered, that that in of itself is attractive. Not because we're trying to get that, it's just that's what we're supposed to do for God, and then people are attracted to that and want to know how you did it because they want it. Now, if they don't want it and they're there for, I don't know, free group therapy, I guess it really won't matter, and the group will just fall apart if everybody's there for free group therapy. But, um, but just doing our work and making sure that we uh, come at the highest spiritual level uh, will change the energy in the room. Just one person doing their step 10 work on this issue and doing their work so they're recovered will have an impact on the meeting. How it turns out, I don't know. But if each person makes that commitment, then that energy changes. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll get what you want, but it means the energy will change because now God's better able to get through you. So I've not really answered your question because I don't know exactly what's causing those issues. I would only look to myself first and do what I can to clean up my stuff. And then I will have better insight of what I need to do next. Thank you. All right, thanks. Yes, thank you, Ruth. Anyone else with questions this morning regarding the 12 traditions? Hi, this is Margaret in Illinois. May I ask a question? Yes. Hi, Ruth. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful, wonderful um, treasure of information. Um, I find that I um, really enjoy reading about the traditions and stuff. And I have two questions. One was uh, the book that you are referring to. I guess I, if you mentioned it early on, I didn't catch it. But it's, I'm trying to read different books uh, regarding AA. So is this like a workbook that you're working from, or is it a book that I could pick up, or...? Yeah, it's called The Language of the Heart, and it is okay. a book. It is the book that put together all of Bill's grapevine articles that he wrote, and they put it into one book. If you get the best of the grapevine, you know, and I think there's books one, two, three, maybe four, I can't remember, which I have those books, and interspersed you may find some of Bill's writing, but this book is only Bill's writing. It's exclusively Bill's writings in for the grapevine into one book. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. And then my other question was, I, I guess I wasn't quite clear on the reason why, I think you said in the seventh tradition, or uh, it seems like you're at that, that point, you mentioned the reduction of the price of the big book, and, and why. I, I guess I didn't quite 
catch why. If it was because too much money was being kept in the in the tills or the funds of AA, or what was the reasoning be, behind it being reduced by a dollar? I think you said. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happened was AA looked at its balance sheet and found that when they sold the big book to some somebody or group organization whatever that was not AA any of the AA big book the big books that were sold to anybody in OA the ones they were sold to GA and to NA and whatever these group OA would say for example buy some books for its members or I as an OA member would buy a book for me but I'm not AA they found that the amount of small markup on each of those books that was going out to non-AA members, that little bit of markup on all those books, which were a lot of books, was so much that it then meant if they took that amount out of that markup of each book sold to non-AA members, they view that as an outside enterprise because it wasn't AA, it was OA, it was NA. These outside enterprises, meaning some other 12-step groups that were, some organizations, groups that were not AA, that was an outside enterprise. The money that they made in that small markup on each book sold to groups that were not AA then caused them to have a profit that if they took it out, they would now be operating in the red. They would now be not getting enough income overall for the whole, all the sources of income that was coming in would be less than the amount of money they needed to stay even. So they told the fellowship as a whole that we're not doing that now. Because of our book being so popular to so many people, this was, I think, you know, during the New Age, woo-woo era, into the 80s, huge, you know, um, a lot of people were buying the, even the big books that didn't even attend the 12-step meeting. They were out there buying, if you remember that time in the late 80s. So um, it was being sold in bookstores and things. So they said that that money, which is that small markup on each book, a dollar, is um, you take all those dollars and you're, you know, they sold over 2 million copies, 3 million. I don't know what it is now. I know it's more than 2 million. That is enough from outside enterprises that we're not fully self-supporting. We have to be fully self-supporting. We're not because that money is coming from outside enterprise. That is other 12-step groups and other people and places that are buying them. We now are not fully self-supporting. We're violating the seventh tradition. We have to mark it down because of all that, that we're gener- that's being generated. And now you, the fellowship AA, please make up the difference of all the money we're losing from doing so. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Again, I appreciate uh, your service today. Thank you. Right, thank you. Thank you, Ruth. I want to ask you, Ruth, at this time, if you'd like to continue a few more minutes or what your time needs are. No, I'm fine. If the people want okay. to ask questions, I'm okay. Ruth has given her permission. Any other questions? This is Rob. I have one. Please go ahead, Rob. Thank you. Um, thank you, Ruth, so much. Um, my question revolves around a situation that's going on with our group now and a particular member. And... Um, Basically, what's happened is this member is having some other um, other problems, and, and because of that, has has this member has broken the tradition of anonymity. He has uh, identified many of us group members in multiple emails to people in and out of the group. He has revealed things that we've said at meetings or said to him personally. 
And he's also embellished those things and, and changed what we've said and, and, and completely distorted facts. And, and I realize that that's just something that on my own I need to deal with with my higher power and with my sponsor, et cetera. But uh, and for the most part, he has quit coming to meetings um, and feels that he actually feels that he's been banned from the meetings, although that's not happened and not been said. But when he does show up at meetings, people are, of course, very um, hesitant to share, thinking that, well, anything that they may now say could get spread with to anyone and anywhere. And I, I know just from listening to what you said today that there's really no way that we can now, and I don't think anybody really wants to. I mean, everybody, I think, really would love for this individual to get the help that they need and, and, and all that. And there's no way that we can, you know, bar this, this, this person from the meeting. And, and again, we don't really want to, but, it, but it's, it's led to a very uncomfortable feeling when he does show up that, okay, we're happy he's here, but nobody wants to say anything. And so I'm just wondering how can we as a group approach that, or is it mostly just, well, I, I don't really know. I, I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of go back to what I said before. It sounds like fear. You may correct me here. It sounds like fear. I, I don't really want to say something because I don't think it's going to be protected. My enemy is going to be protected. So, so I have some fear. And when I come from fear, I do not come from God because fear and anger block me, so I can't come from love towards that individual. I have fear towards him. So, again, we each individually would go and do our own step 10 work on the issue of our fear and so how that blocks us from having God expressed through us and how to handle the situation and how to talk to the individual. So again, find somebody, if it's not your sponsor, that's not emotionally invested in the outcome because they may have difficulty being neutral. Uh, find somebody to help you work through that so that you come uh, through those steps and you now feel love towards him. Once you feel love towards him, you will have a different view and thought process of how to handle it. The particulars, I do not know. If I work with somebody in that situation, I'm not supposed to know because that's playing God. I just try to create a sacred space for them to get to the place where they have dealt with their fear and their anger so that God can speak through them. And almost always I find when they get to that point, they now have the answer, which they always had, within them, but they just couldn't experience it because they were feeling anger and fear. Just give them that space, do that piece, and they will already know their answer. So you're saying what should be done, I would then have all the groups, anybody in the group, making a commitment to do their step 10 work. Once you have done that, and each person has now no more fear and anger towards this individual and can come with love of what to do, you will have your answer because God will tell you. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I, that, that that seems much more evident after listening to you today that it's that it's not something that the the group itself can actually do or should actually do. It's it's, it's the collective conscience of the group after we take care of our stuff, whether or not he ever takes care of his his side of the street. Correct. So, okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rob and Ruth, for your response. Anyone else this morning with a question?
Star one allows you to unmute. This is Rebecca. Rebecca, go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Ruth and Leah, and everyone who's shared. Um, I learned a lot from your talk today, Ruth, and specifically what I'd like to address is that I didn't realize that I was breaking a tradition when I spoke on the line recently um, thinking that I was doing the right thing in making an amends, but I mentioned individuals' names and um, a discussion that I've had about what someone else has said on the line and um, uh, referred to that person specifically and then attempted to make an amends for um, my uh, response to what the person has said. So now I have to make amends to you all for gossiping, which I didn't realize I was doing, and breaking anonymity right and left. And um, I humbly apologize and am so grateful for a, a newfound level of understanding of how to practice these principles in all my affairs. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. This is Sharon. Hi, Sharon. One moment, a... please. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did Ruth want to respond? Um, no, I, I. No, I think she said what needed to be said. So. Okay. I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Okay, Sharon, please go ahead. Well, yeah, I have. I'm just. Uh, questioning what was what um was just said because I remember hearing that and it was it was said when we were in a group meeting and then the apology was made in a group meeting which I didn't feel was inappropriate and didn't violate the traditions because in many ways the group needed to hear that so that we would increase our learning and increase our understanding of how anonymity works as a group. So I thought it very appropriate to bring it on a group level. So I guess that becomes my question is, uh, was it really inappropriate for her to have apologized to that person before the group when, when, uh, she what she said was in a group setting. Okay, well, again, I I wasn't a party to what's going on, and uh, so I really don't have any of the particular details. Um, that as far as apology, let's say we make an amends to somebody. Um, if I've done some harm, then I go to that person one on one and make amends to that person for that harm done. Um, that's appropriate. If, for example, I have, uh, in the middle of a meeting, been verbally abusive to someone else in that meeting uh, at that time, then later, I'm not saying this is Rebecca's, I actually have no idea what happened, I would then talk to that person one-on-one -on -one to uh, make amends for my inappropriate behavior to that person 
because um, that person has the right to say something back, but can they do it in front of everybody? To be respecting of them and how they felt about it and what they would want to say to me, maybe they would want to only say that to me. So I would obviously make that amends to that individual one-on-one. -on -one. Then I would also make a second amends after I've done that first one to the group that witnessed the inappropriate behavior because I'm making amends to them for, for them witnessing something that they needed not to have witnessed in that meeting. So I would apologize to them for the harm done them, which is a different than the harm done the person. They may be intertwined, they may be pretty identical, uh, but I would then apologize to the group. It may also require individual apologies to people that witnessed it depending upon how they responded to me. Uh, again, I I'm really don't know the situation, but that's why you would need to work with a sponsor to clarify how to correct a wrong done in the way in which you do not cause harm to others in how you make the amends. Um, so if I make an amends and I say something in a group about something I had said previously, Unless the, it's an identical same uh, members attending each group, you've got somebody now in that second meeting being pulled into a situation that they had no awareness of. And then, yes, they could be hearing names of people, which, what is this about? I mean, it's just a normal inquisitive question, which really isn't their stuff. Uh, they are getting into something. So you would, um, so you have to cover all those bases, and that's why you would have to talk to a sponsor because in that second scenario, that second meeting, you would have to do a little explanation to say, I was wrong, this is what I did. I mean, basically we make amends. First we state, you know, we're making amends, we state exactly what the behavior was, we state that um, it, we're sorry for the harm it did that person, and then we agree not to make those, that harm done again. Um, it, it could be done, but, um, but can we, if we can do an amends without labeling, com if somebody made a comment, and then we said something inappropriately back in a meeting, then we make an amends, but why would we, would we need to label that the person said something which may then be re repeating a gossiping in front of somebody else that wasn't even in the first meeting? So yes, we could by violating tradition, even though we're trying to do our best to correct something. Um, so in that case, we're bringing in new gossip because now we got a new person in the room that wasn't there at the last meeting. And now they're hearing something that really, was that their response to hear? No, because it's something that was said in a previous meeting. And unless we get permission from that person to say specifically what they said, identifying them, then we can't repeat that. Um, again, it's, I don't know the story. So it's all going to have to be sorted out with a sponsor objectively and how to properly make the amends without harming anybody nor violating a tradition in doing so. Um, Rebecca's made her amends, and so that's been done. And um, I'm sure she can check that out with her sponsor and whatever. And you can check it out with your sponsor, uh, or you can talk to Rebecca, however you want to resolve that. But in the process, the key is that we do not repeat um, identifying, uh, we do not repeat names of people and what they said if we were not party to that and they've not given us permission, we're, we're not at liberty to be repeating that to others. Because in the process, in spite of good intentions, we are gossiping now. So we have to make sure we stay clean, even in a discussion. 
So you have to make sure you follow traditions. So you may ask your sponsor, make sure that you properly handle your con confusion about what was going on with your sponsor. Make sure you honor the traditions even in asking the question. And then yes, Rebecca has to make you. sure she follows the traditions and how she answers it, if she can. I don't know. Again, I don't know what happened, and it's really not my business. So I'm just here to try to make sure the traditions are, are protected. That would be all I would say. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth and Sharon. Anyone else with questions this morning regarding the 12 traditions? Going once. Twice. And three times. All right. Well, I'll assume that the silence means that all minds are cleared. Again, thank you, Ruth, for all the time and effort you offered us this morning as we now have a greater understanding and appreciation for our 12 traditions. We thank you very much. Thank you. With Thanks that, I pass. Much. Thank you.